The Dime is sponsored by ETH Revolution. The cannabis industry has unique challenges, which means you need a multifaceted partner to help you navigate the landscape. ETH Revolution has a team of experienced science and business experts to provide a unique analytical approach, providing services from capital to cannabinoid and everything in between. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. As always, I'm Brian Fields. I'm with me. I've got my right-hand man, Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Tahir Johnson, Director of Social Equity Inclusion at the U.S. Cannabis Council. Tahir, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm good, man. What's going on with you, Brian? Excited to have you. Another East Coast, just to kind of put it on the record, another East Coaster, Maryland in the building. Hey, East Coast is in the house, man. Um, you know, we taking over cannabis. It's, it's spreading definitely like wildfire over here. Kellen, you got anything to say before we dive in? I'm just here to bring the wisdom of the West Coast to help, <laughs> help educate the East Coast boys over there. And, you know, y'all been doing it for a minute in Colorado. <laughs> you know, once once we get a hold of stuff over here, man, it turns, it transforms into something different. <laughs> oh, I agree. A lot of people over there on the East Coast. Yeah, so, man, New York, New Jersey, Virginia, Connecticut, like all within like not even 12 months, man. It's been crazy. Literally crazy. the East Coast wave. So to hear, before we dive into some of the topics today, I'd love for the listeners to learn a little bit about your background. For sure, man. So... Like you said, I'm an East Coast guy. I currently live in Upper Marlboro in Prince George's County, Maryland. Um, but I was born and raised in Trenton, New Jersey. I ended up out here in the in the DC DMV area. Been here since 2001. I went to Howard University. I know the folks listening can't see me repping with my Howard shirt, but I always try to um, represent my historically black colleges and universities. I actually majored in marketing, then ended up working in finance. Um, Most of my professional career, I was an investment advisor, started out at PNC Bank on the banking side and ended up working for Morgan Stanley. Um, Then finally, SunTrust Investments before I transitioned over to the cannabis industry. Um, For me, when I was in finance, financial literacy was always something important to me, especially educating communities of color about, you know, finances, right? Because that's something that we don't have enough conversations about. And as I started looking at the cannabis industry and saw the access to capital, um, was a major barrier to minority participation. It was something that attracted me to the industry. So in 2019, I started working as a bud tender at a dispensary right near my house called Medleaf. I mean, I loved it so much. I've always loved cannabis, but once I got the opportunity to do that, quit the job in finance, then went all in on this. I've had the opportunity to do, it seems like in such a short time, done so many things, but I started out, I applied for licenses here in Maryland in my home state in New Jersey. And then I, I got involved in advocacy, man. Once I, again, like once I found out about all the different problems and different things associated with the cannabis industry, I really wanted to try to find um, ways to be helpful and to solve them. So as I got introduced to the Minority Cannabis Business Association and attended um, my first lobby day there, it was crazy because I had no idea what lobbying was, but I've always been like a relationship person. I had a lot of connections. So as I'm looking at the sheet of the members of Congress that we were supposed to go talk to, I'm like, hey, one of my boys, chiefest effort is congressman. Should I hit him up? And so like everybody turns and they're looking at me like, what? <laughs> so it's like that was my introduction to lobbying. Um, and, you know, through then, it's, it's just been ever since then I had the opportunity to um my good friend, Calico Castile, who was the head of business development at, at the National Cannabis Industry Association at the time, he and I met there and that started my career in cannabis advocacy, was at NCI for a year and got to start their diversity, equity and inclusion programs. 
really focused on, um, again, inclusion in the industry and education. And in April, I had the opportunity to um, move over here where I am now with the U.S. Cannabis Council and Marijuana Policy Project, which has really just been an uh, amazing opportunity. Um, here at USCC and at MPP, I kind of really get to being with two different organizations, really tackle social equity and cannabis legalization from two different fronts. I'm on the MPP side. It's more focused on, you know, state by state legalization and, and grassroots efforts. But at the U.S. Cannabis Council, I'm focused on federal um, cannabis policy and in both making sure that social equity is a key part of our policy agenda. Right. We're at the 50 year anniversary of the war on drugs. Um, Black and brown communities have been devastated for years. So trying to make sure that we have some restorative and economic justice with our legalization policies, but then also developing a number of different programs for our members at USCC to participate in. And it's really great because we have probably some of the most of the largest, you know, cannabis businesses that are, that operate in the U.S. and Canada. So to be able to really put forth initiatives that the entire industry can stand by to really change the game in a meaningful way has been like a dream come true for me, man. I'm, I'm loving every minute of it. It's amazing what you're doing. And I, I can't even believe like depths of all the challenges you're looking to overcome. And before we kind of dive into some of those specifics, I'd love to kind of go back to the beginning. When you're in finance and you're interested in kind of diving into cannabis, take us through that thought process. Because I think for our listeners out there who are intrigued, but kind of intimidated by the journey, were you sure you were going to dive in? You know, take us through kind of that thought process when you're moving from finance to cannabis. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, mine was an interesting one. So for one, um, you know, I've, I've always been, I'll say I, I've been in, in around cannabis in one way or another for, a, you know, a good part of my life. But I was blessed to have the opportunity to, you know, have get a career in finance, something that I was passionate about and loved. And for me, I, I actually remember the specific moment, like when it was like, you know what, this is like, what am I doing here? And it, it sounds crazy, but I, even when I say it out loud, because I think it's like career wise, it's the type of thing that people strive for. And I kind of did like a, I don't know, my favorite rapper was Mace going growing up, right? I kind of walked away like from finance, like at the peak of my career um, to, to do cannabis. Um, so like for me, it was like I was sitting, I had a client. So I managed, if you got anybody knows about anything about DC. So I was the financial advisor for Georgetown and um, the Capitol Hill branches, which are like affluent areas, you know, places in D.C. And I was having a meeting with a retired U.S. ambassador that had inherited a bunch of money. And I was trying to help her figure out like a couple million dollars, how to plan for it. I sat there and was thinking to myself, like, what the hell am I doing here? Right. Because it was like I got into finance because I was passionate about helping my community and wanted to do financial education. But I ended up in wealth management, which is a great career. You know, again, I actually love doing it as well. I, You know, it was great to know about the stock market, finance, all of those things. But it, it was a couple of things were happening at the same time. For one, um, my and this is what made me kind of know that, that it was cannabis. So my dad was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, um, which is like a like a neurological disorder. So he had all types of like crazy medications that they were putting him on, like this nasty one called prednisone. And I'm like, Dad, like I was like, I think you because I, I did I did a report talking about when met, but back when I was at Howard, you know, like early 2000s, medical cannabis still relatively new. I was that stoner guy in class that did a did a report and research report on medical cannabis. So I said, I said, hey, dad, I was like, I, you know, I remember we called it. I was like, hey, dad, I was, I was like, I think you should try medical marijuana that might help you with this. And so he's like, son, I've been smoking weed since the 60s. There's nothing you could tell me about this. So 
And I was like, no, I was like, no, dad, I really think this can help you. So through that journey of us exploring like medical cannabis together, like, and you know, trying to help him, that was the first time that I was exposed to like what the legal cannabis industry, what it was. Prior to that, I didn't really have any context other than, you know, what we all call the legacy market. So even a few years before that, like I act back when I was at Morgan Stanley, I even saw when GW Pharma first went public. And that was like my first inkling that there was a cannabis industry. Right. Um, and so through that conversation with my dad, um, we both got our medical cannabis cards together. And like, again, through that process, we learned so much at the same time. Um, Hope Wiseman, who's my good friend now, but is also the youngest black woman to own a dispensary in the country. Um, she she had just opened up her dispensary, Marion, Maine in 2019. Um, so she was starting to get a lot of press and she had a finance background like me. She was an investment banker prior to coming into cannabis. So when I started hearing that story, it's like really sparked something in me like that I could do the same thing and use that same skill. So it was like all of those things happening at the same time that let me really know that it was time. Um, and in addition, so again, like I'm working at the dispensary, I had started an organization called um, Cannabison. The Bison is Howard University's um, mascot. And the goal of the organization was to be able to connect historically Black college and university alums to opportunities in cannabis. Because I was thinking about it all the way back then, is that like being a great way to be able to introduce more minorities to the industry? And so like I started Cannabison and I um, the National Cannabis Festival, I entered the pitch competition and I ended up being the runner up. Right. So it was like I had these ideas of how I wanted to diversify the industry, knew about the problems that were there. And then, I, I mean, I loved being a bud tender, even though it was a job where I didn't make any money. So like all those things together, I just decided to to go all in, man. And, and thankfully, I've been blessed that it's worked out for me, man, because I'll say I know so many other people that have like pursued opportunities to get licenses and so many other things the same way I did and started out. They haven't been afforded the same opportunities that I have. So I'm always so thankful for that. And I appreciate you sharing that story and the journey you took, because I think moments like that, the discovery of oneself and kind of how they got pulled in. I think a lot of times people kind of look to figure out, will there be a defining moment in my life where I realize it's time to make the switch? And I appreciate you you sharing that story. So let's kind of talk about your, your day-to-day job. Obviously, your hands are tied across various different verticals with your contributions. What's a, an average day or a, a typical day like for Tahir? Man, to be honest, if it's a day like today, I'm probably on Zoom from like 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. <laughs> talking to people. <laughs> it's like I'm on the East Coast, but trying to connect with West Coast folks <laughs> as well. But really right now, um, over the, the past couple of weeks, I've, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of traveling. Um, just saw you guys out of MJ BizCon. Um, I spoke on a panel at MJ Biz, and I also um, hosted a reception in partnership with Minorities for Medical Marijuana. That was amazing. Um, the week before that, I was at a conference in Ojai, California. Beautiful opportunity networking with cannabis executives there. So if a, a lot of time I'll, I'll spend time at events educating with internal folks in the industry on social equity. But another thing that I've been spending a lot of time for the last over the last couple of months since I've been at U.S. Cannabis Council A big part of one of my goals is wanting to, as we tear down the stigma of cannabis and educate more more people of color and people that have been impacted by the war on drugs into the cannabis industry, I've really been doing a lot of outreach to traditional um, like minority-led civic organizations and um, civil rights organizations. So over the past couple of months, I had the opportunity to 
um, like Reverend Al Sharpton invited me to take part in the National Action Network cannabis panel. I've been a part of the U.S. Black Chamber of Commerce, put together a cannabis event for them. A couple months ago, I had the opportunity to to help AMVETS, which is a, a veteran service organization, come out as the first VSO to support publicly support cannabis and do an event for that. So a lot of times, if I'm not doing speaking engagements, is doing a lot of outreach, but then also really developing programs because, um, you know, again, like trying to create an infrastructure so that we can create easier pathways for people to get into the industry with less friction. Um, and also, again, since we have the within my network, I have the membership and people to be able to provide those opportunities to be the bridge between those two. Um, and then I'll say another another way that I spend a lot of my time is focused on policy. So on the MPP side, um, you know, focused with our our state and legislative campaign folks, again, focused on policy. But then, man, over the past couple of months, we've had so many opportunities to be engaged in policy at the federal level. So I work very closely with our government relations teams as well as the um, government relations leads from a lot of our member companies. So I was super active in trying to develop our response to the Cannabis Administration Opportunity Act. Um, Man, last week I had an amazing event. I just had some of my best friends who are cannabis operators come out and speak to uh, members of Congress about the challenges of being able to operate in the cannabis business without access to banking. So safe banking is another issue. As you could imagine, the way I came into the industry that's near and dear and close to my heart. So again, if it's not policy and programs, it's, it's networking or, or spreading the gospel of cannabis slash social equity, man. So that's really it. So let's talk about that safe banking conversation, because that seems to be hot in everyone's mind. Were the politicians surprised by some of the challenges that the operators were sharing? Or were they kind of, they, they understood them, but were still hesitant to make changes? Can you kind of share more about that? Sure. Well, I, I think the reason that the event that we had last week is important is because there's this narrative out there that passing safe banking or giving access to banking for cannabis would only be helpful to the big companies or the, um, you know, like the larger companies or to the banks. And I thought that it was really important that we change that narrative. Because these are people that, again, a lot of what we see, um, what we face in cannabis prohibition or changing these laws is truly education, right? If people like knew that cannabis wasn't the devil's lettuce like we've been sold all these years or like they knew how these problems actually impacted minority entrepreneurs, that it's not just big cannabis that stands to benefit from it. I thought that telling that story was important. So people were able to speak from a number of different experiences. I had my boy, Tucky Blunt. He's the first social equity um, dispensary owner in Oakland and by that way in the world. My boy, Shayuna Dataji, he's the youngest African-American dispensary owner in the country with Elevate Cannabis. He has operations in Oregon and Massachusetts. Um, I had my Jersey folks, my big brother, um, Leo Bridgewater. He's a, a super active veterans advocate um, in cannabis who's, who's now pursuing a cannabis license. And my, my homegirl, Precious. I'm not going to even mess her last name up, but she's a she's a bison <laughs> also. Um, she's from Jersey also, and she's the CEO of a company called Roll Up Life that's pursuing a um that's pursuing a delivery license in New Jersey. And she's really man, I'm so proud of her because she's like she I'll say like a little sister. I watched her, you know, I'd always see stuff like myself and people, and I've watched how just over the past year she's emerged as a leader in the New Jersey cannabis scene. So I thought that it was important to have her speaking. And last but certainly not least, we had James Bauer who's the director of security for Live Well, one of the largest cannabis dispensaries in the country. And so they were all able to share different experiences, right? Like James was able to say that Live Well 
had like 15 burglaries or, or rob, like attempted robberies within like a 90-day period. That's crazy, right? Talk about how that puts people in danger. Tucky, during, during the uprisings last year after George Floyd was murdered and there were riots everywhere, Tucky's shop got ran in literally by hundreds of people who went into his store, store, you know, because they knew that there would be cash and, of course, marijuana there. So he was talking about how, you know, not only that situation, but how he stresses out about keeping himself and his employees safe because he doesn't have that same multi-million dollar budget to keep it secure like live well. My guy Shayun has a multi-million dollar business now, but he started Elevate like sleeping in his dispensary. When he started it, he started with $50,000, had to sleep in there to like get his life started. So being able to tell that story, how he had to bootstrap it. Um, and then Precious and Leo being able to talk about, um, you know, being able to talk about their, they're just experienced pursuing a cannabis license very early on and like a new state that is coming online was certainly, um, you know, good to talk about, you know, because if, again, if we say we want to help pe- more people get into the industry and we talk about barriers, they can literally talk about like, I'm trying to do this and talk about the challenges that they're facing. So again, I know that was a long winded way to, to summarize and say that it, it really was just all about telling the stories that it's not just big cannabis that this impacts, but it has real implications for, um, people of color being able to participate in the industry, but then also public safety. And that speaks to everybody. So I think the safe banking is really important. Yeah, I'm glad you shared those different stories because there are incredible challenges and they make things way harder for people and the ability to, to have those necessities that other industries take for granted. Kellen, I want you to kind of expand on that from an educational standpoint. You think the politicians are surprised to hear these types of stories? Are, but I think I just want to go back to the narrative that Tahir was talking about. I think that, I mean, with safe banking, it completely changes the landscape because a lot of people don't understand that in order to like grow your company or do anything as far as capital goes, like you're going out and you have to raise private money, which means like you're diluting your ownership in it or you're giving up revenue or you're you're borrowing money at insane, insane interest rates, right? Like 18, 24%, like you're literally just pouring concrete on your feet and trying to run a mile. Like it's just not going to work as far as like building a long-term successful business. And that goes for small, small time operators. And what say banking does is it provides the opportunity for any size operator to go out and take like a normal business loan at normal interest rates that like the federal reserve sets, you know what I mean? And, and these are tools that a lot of people just take for granted in other industries because they're just standard standard practices, you know? So I think that the narrative is really important. I mean, also as far as the communication that operators have with our politicians, I think is tremendous just as far as communicating that, hey, the cannabis industry is a real industry now and it's growing. It's it's in almost every single state if there's a medical program or, or adult rec and, and having, putting, being able to put faces to to the industry, I think helps move the, the conversation forward as far as federal decriminalization. So, I mean, th- those are my biggest thoughts about safe banking. What, what are your thoughts, Brian? Yeah, I think putting a face to, to the name and hearing the story kind of really resonates probably a lot stronger. And I, I think the one part that sometimes gets forgotten too is that like when people are, are trying to enter the space and they, they're applying for a license, there's a ton of fees associated that are non-refundable fees. And I think sometimes we've had conversations where we're blown away by the total cost and sheer amount where I think that that part alone doesn't make the game fair for everyone that's trying to enter the space. And, you know, I wonder if 
people who are establishing these policies even recognize that they've positioned this to make it challenging, right? They've developed these social equity programs that they're they're trying to help people, but then they make the rules of the game almost impossible and contradictory to to allow for that. So to hear, I'd love for you to kind of expand on that from a social equity side. Obviously, there's a ton that's going on. Is there something that you think politicians can do now to make more of a difference? Is there a certain location that you think is doing a great job that, you know, you want to shout out? Sure. Well, you know, to to that question, I'll say first, you know, I, I think the reason that a lot of the politicians or legislators are are thinking in the direction they are right now. And I'll back up and say that legalizing cannabis and making sure that nobody's arrested for cannabis, that we don't still have people serving time for cannabis, like in any type of way, like let's just say no legal interactions to do with cannabis is very important. And I think that that is something that we absolutely should 100 percent pursue. When you look at the actual political landscape of where we are today, though, I don't know that there's any of the like broad legalization bills that we put out have the bipartisan support to get passed right now. So, again, just this incremental bit of change could be helpful to a lot of people. And it by no means takes away like the the fact that we need to still legalize cannabis or do any of those things. And I would say that I would personally see to it that we continue to work on that because it's important for me. Like I've, I've personally had cannabis charges, right? This is something I've lived through in my own life. So again, I think it is just, it's the education piece. Like people actually getting to hear those stories, like in addition to like access to capital, this is also a really inefficient way to run a business. My friend Precious says she has to drive two hours to go to her bank anytime she has to go there. Like she has an existing bank, but the fees are astronomical. You got to drive two hours away and you can't even get full banking services. Tucky literally said, like, if I got to pay a $15,000 bill, I got to go drive around and get a bunch of different thousand dollar money orders to go pay this stuff. So talk about like, I'm already got access to capital. I'm trying to bootstrap a business. I got to go run around and do all of this extra stuff. How how the hell am I going to be successful? So I think it was just really educating and doing that. There are some programs that I guess social equity programs on the state level that are focused on giving access to capital. I know in Portland, Oregon, they're out there doing some great things. I think the city of Sacramento and California is also doing some stuff. Colorado, you know, they're getting ready to implement their social equity program. And I know they've set aside some money to support those businesses, which is great. So, but being able to pass banking at the federal level, I think makes a change because it also, I think you made a good point, right? People being able to go in and get access to just cap traditional capital in a different type of way, where just because you talk to somebody about a loan, they're not trying to take equity in your company and different things like that is, is a game changer. So do you think safe banking helps level the playing field? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, so I would also add, and this is coming back from my history of, of banking, right? <clears throat> I'm not naive that redlining um, and those things exist, that African-Americans, Latinos, people of color get less access to lending and capital from banks. And that's certainly another issue. But one of the other things that we have an opportunity for when banking becomes available, if you think of um, most national banks have some type of initiative towards supporting community endeavors, um, and things like that. There could be opportunities for grants and, and different community grants and other things from banks that could be helpful also. But again, I, I'll say that it, it's not a, a magic bullet. It doesn't fix. It's not like all of a sudden we get banking and we have parity, but it does give a step up, right? And that's that, that's all you could ask for, right? Like we need, we're already trying to climb a mountain, just, you know, just give people a little bit of an advantage. 
yeah, we just need to continue to do a better job, right? There's no, unfortunate, there's no one single bolt that can kind of change all the issues we have. All we can do is continue to strive for improvement. And to Kellen, to your question about leveling the playing field, I'll kind of take the other side of it where the longer it goes on where we don't have safe banking, the larger MSOs are just kind of separating themselves farther and farther. Yeah, because right. of they, they have private equity, right? right. They capital. They have all of this stuff. I've actually had the opportunity to score applications for like a state's medical cannabis program. And you see like people literally saying, I have access to millions of dollars in private equity. So, and you also see people on the other end of that. And I've been this person, people that are spending their life savings, going to family members, things like that, try to make it. So if you could just go in the bank, right? Like if Shayun, who's been in business now for a number of years, has a balance sheet, can show his revenues, even for an existing operator. If he could go into a bank and get a loan, it would make a huge difference, right? So it does help to level the playing field a bit. And then I always wonder too, like the MSOs are aware that the longer this goes on, the more they're kind of separating from the pack. So obviously I know they want to kind of do their part in kind of contributing for the overall benefit of the industry. And a lot of the leaders are pretty vocal about that kind of contribution. So I know you're working on an internship program and I'd love for you to kind of share more about it. Sure. And, you know, one of the things that I would add, and that's that's one of the things that's beautiful about U.S. Cannabis Council, because the way the organization came together, it was literally like the I'll say like the top line mission in our founding statement is about building that prosperous, equitable and inclusive cannabis industry for everybody. Um, so, you know, again, and I won't say that, of course, the, the more state operators, they stand to benefit from banking passing as well. That's that's not a secret. Right. Of course, they do have access to capital now, but traditional capital would be better for everybody. But one of the things that I've seen is, again, seeing um, seeing all these different large state operators come together to really support social equity um, and really like to really develop a platform around that. And. With that being said, is where the internship program and all of these other things um, that I'm working on comes into play. So it's actually, um, I'm super proud that we're doing an internship program. We're partnering with the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, and we're going to have, um, I think right now we're up to 10 different interns that will be in different organizations um, that are within U.S. Cannabis Council. And so they'll have the opportunity to, to really get hands-on experience in the industry. And I think that that's a great thing because they'll get to learn directly from, you know, leaders. And one of the biggest things that you, um, you know, people just need an opportunity to get their foot in the door, to be able to network and make contacts, to be able to learn about what the industry is. And, you know, being able to have like somebody being able to say that they have this on their resume will be a game changer for people. So I'm really excited and hoping that this will, you know, make a small little um, difference in the industry. I think it'll make more than a small difference. I think you're right. Experience is so, so important for, for the industry as it goes forward because the industry is accelerating. It's one of the fastest growing job sectors. And if you don't have experienced individual to fill those sectors, it starts to become like a balancing act. Then people are looking for that. So let's let's talk more about that program. Is there certain roles that are available? Like how, if people are interested in it, like can you share more about that top level approach? Yeah, sure. Well, the um, the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation is going to handle all the recruiting. They've operated like internship programs for a number of years. And so they're kind of providing the structure. The interns will get professional development opportunities to interact with um, members of Congress as well. Um, and then also to work with our um, member companies that are, you know, that are part of whatever company they get assigned to. So yeah, it's going to run it. The first cohort is going to be in the spring semester from January through May. 
we're act- actively getting it up and running now. So um, I think that helps with the other issue that's arising in the industry, which is the decrease in as far as uh, women and minority leaders in cannabis companies by providing the opportunity for the people to get more experience, then they're going to be higher skilled individuals that can help take these companies to the next level as far as leadership roles go. So I just wanted to highlight that as well. Because like safe banking is only one aspect, right? Like having money is only one thing, but the people are what's going to make the good companies. No, nah, and Kellen, you're 100% right. And the reason it does make a difference is because, you know, if, if you come into a company as like a bud tender or a trimmer, right, the, the pathway of where you can go and rise up in that company is limited. But with this program, we're going to yes. give people the opportunity to, in, to enter in the professional positions, right? So this is like the government relations department, the finance department, the marketing department, the executive department. We want to be able to place people in those so that it can create clear pathways for future leadership in the industry. Yep. So important. So to hear this is a question I was excited to ask you. For our listeners out there, what is one fact or statistic that you think will surprise or shock them about the cannabinoid industry? Man, you know why it's such a hard question, man? Because I feel like now I'm like in a bubble. I don't I don't even know what people know or don't know anymore, man. But uh, <laughs> I think, um, man, I feel like <laughs> most people don't know that there are like over, that there are hundreds of different cannabinoids in cannabis. There's like the bud tender nerd coming out. But then like, you know, terpenes is something that, it, that was super cool to learn about in cannabis, right? Like the same type of essential oils that are in other plants are in cannabis. And that's what makes up the unique scents or taste that you get, the texture and all that stuff is super interesting. So um, cannabis is actually a lot more like a plant than, um, I mean, it is a plant, right? It's, it's a lot more like has more similarities with other plants than we probably normally talk about. And with that being said about the cannabinoids, right? Like we're just scratching the surface. Like weed is not just getting high, right? Like there's so much more to that. And which is why we need like research and everything to try to advance that. Yeah. Slightly switch gears. Early on, Illinois was praised for their social equity program. Their licensing didn't seem to resemble that from an overall outcome standpoint. Do you think New York and New Jersey and more of the East Coast states will learn from that and do a better job? Absolutely. Um, One thing I'll say is that, so for one, the the whole concept of social equity is something that's relatively new. Um, Like I said, Tucky's the first social equity operator in the world, and he just started in Oakland. I think he opened in like 2019, right? So each each time is like I was kind of described, I've described it in the past, like a laboratory of democracy. Each time they're trying to figure out what laws make sense, what will make a difference, how to get it right. In Illinois, for as much as they get bashed, there are some positive things that came out of the program. While the licensing thing has been a disaster, like the whole concept of money going back to communities that have been impacted with their 3R programs, that was something that originated there in Illinois. New York and New Jersey have both taken that on and made it a significant part of their program. So now that the cannabis tax revenue will help to fund different programs that can assist people that have been victims and harmed by the war on drugs. So I think that that's really great. And so, again, I mean, I I swear, I hope we don't have that same disaster out here. Um, New York has already said they just said yesterday that their um, that licenses likely won't be released until 2023. So that means that tells you right there that they're being really thoughtful about this process. They don't want to rush it. They want to research. They want to get it right. Um, New Jersey, ours, our applications were actually due to be out a few weeks ago, but they haven't. Um, but what I've seen in terms of New Jersey's regulations, 
I'll tell you that I'm really happy with some of the things that I was hoping to see, like um, not having license caps, not having capital requirements, not having real estate requirements or things that they actually put in place. In terms of talking about financial barriers, they actually made it really inexpensive and accessible to apply for licenses. I want to say like the lowest, like the lowest tier license, like application started like a hundred dollars. So like, where do you see that? Right. Like it's normally thousands of dollars and all this other stuff. It doesn't take away with the um, intrinsic costs that are involved. And of course, there's still um, some local control issues that we'll probably see similar to Massachusetts that will impact it. But I think where we're starting that out of the gate is definitely, a, you know, is definitely a good point. So I got to bring up the New York question. So why, if New Jersey's getting their stuff together so fast, why is New York, they're just going to allow New Jersey to open up and we're just going to fall behind? Because, I mean, the money's just going to go right over the bridge. I don't know, man, but I'm just going to accept it. This is like our first time ever in New Jersey to ever beat New York at anything. <laughs> so it's like, I thank you. I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> Hopefully we don't end up looking bad, though, you know, and it, it comes out good. So, you know, that, that's right. all I can say. <laughs> I mean, my biggest thing with New York is like, how are they going to balance the limited licenses with a social equity program? Because like if you limit licenses, you're instantly going to make it like a, a money game. In my, in my opinion, like the person with the most money is going to win that game, hands down. So like, how do you balance that in New York? That's a good question. But I'll say they got, they have really smart people working on it up there. The um, <laughs> about New York in particular, one of the things that is great is that they have, you know, people that have shown like over the course of their career commitment to advocacy, commitment to social equity, commitment to diversity and inclusion, like within their leadership. And so Hopefully the results of that will be fruitful. That's a good answer. Thank yeah, that, that was a very optimistic approach. I appreciate <laughs> <sharing> that. <laughs> Especially for Brian. <laughs> Reading that, what you shared about what was announced yesterday about like the timeline for 2023, I just sat there and shook my head and was frustrated, right? Obviously, I, I want this market to move faster because I know there's tons of opportunities that it brings to it. And then I wonder, you know, why not lean on the other successes the other states have and even more so learn from some of the failures that they've had and start implementing that information sooner. Of course, I know it doesn't work like that, but can always hope. Hey, man. Well, you know, New York always likes to put on a show and do it big, man. Like I'll say that I'm still confident in New York. Again, hopefully I'll end up with egg in my face later. But like I said, the fact that that I think that they are being intentional and taking their time. I know for those of us that want to like have an opportunity to really participate in the industry, like, you know, people that have been waiting this forever, like New York in particular, the home of stop and frisk, like people being arrested. I'll say thank God in New York, though. Thank God it is legal and it hasn't like waited because I'm not going to lie. Like, I love that you can smoke weed like anywhere in New York. Like, you know, so that that's one thing that's super dope. But again, um, just going back to when will it pass, you know, hopefully that when it does come, it will be something that's that is um, like you said, I wholeheartedly believe that they will have learned. And maybe they just want to give let New Jersey go first. So they can watch us and maybe learn from whatever we'll do there. But, you know, who knows that that <laughs> very positive spin on something that is going to be a, a financially expensive opportunity to watch and learn. Oh, yeah. Fi- very financially expensive. I just Let's, want to say one other thing. Hold on before we move on. All right. Wait, Do you see, uh, you mentioned the stop and frisk thing. Did you see the the new law that came out in Philadelphia? No. What's what's Philly? So Philly, it has nothing to do with cannabis. It literally has everything to do with traffic stops. 
Yeah, yeah, so, I did hear that. Yeah, they're, they're stopping. Yeah. They're stopping. Like, Line of traffic by stops. Yeah. yeah, totally, which is, uh, I think it's incredible, honestly. Oh, man, it is. As somebody that, uh, so I've been pulled over like over 70 times in my life, you know. <laughs> so it's like as somebody that's experienced that like firsthand, like growing up in Trenton, New Jersey, that driving while black and racial profiling was so real, man. Like almost any time you're in a car with like more than a couple people or like they see you in a certain neighborhood, they're just going to pull you over. So and it could be something like a, a tail light out, a I've been pulled over for having the little tree air freshener in my car because they said that's obstruction of view. So like, that's the way they get down in those areas. So being able to um, change that law will have a significant impact on the criminal justice system there. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. So slightly switching gears, hero or mentors in the cannabis industry that's made a difference in your career and what did they do? Oh man, mentors and heroes. So first up, like I said, I, like I started with earlier, I got to say um, my girl, Hope Wiseman, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have been looking at cannabis um, the same type of way that I, that I have. You know, some, some people that folks might not expect me to say, but I'll say like New Jersey weed, man, like growing up in Trenton, um, although he doesn't operate in the legal cannabis industry, like seeing his advocacy and how we fought for legalization, um, for people that have been victims of the war on drugs is always something that's been inspired for me. Another big mentor for me is um, Khadija Tribble, who's the head of social equity and diversity and inclusion at Kiralief. Um, She and I met all the way back when I was still in finance and before she was even at Kiralief in cannabis. And so from day one, she's been a big inspiration for me. Here in D.C., Dr. Shonda Macias, um, Linda Mercado-Green, who are owners of um, the, both dispensaries here in D.C., they took me under the wing and treated me like a son like, as soon as I met them. Like Dr. Shonda, she was a former Howard professor, so like meeting her early on was influential for me. Um, and same thing with Linda, man. I, I call her my auntie, like, and she's even the head of our DEI task force, so I've always been able to call on her and get help. Man, Wanda James, that is my girl right there in Colorado, man. I just love how she rocks the boat, um, gets so much stuff done. I could probably go on forever you ask me this. Shanita Penny, man. Shanita Penny, former president of the Minority Cannabis Business Association. As I was interested in the industry, I had so many conversations with her, like on the phone, talking her ear off. And she's a cannabis consultant, somebody who charges people for free. But for some reason, she poured into me and helped me teach me so much. Um, she also was the one that invited me to the MCBA Lobby Day that really kicked off my career. And then saying that, I have to say Coleco Castile as well, because he brought me there to NCIA. And if it wasn't for that, you know, like all of this other great stuff probably wouldn't have been happening for me. So those have been like some of my major influences. And then one other person I would mention, too, um, is my guy, Kalu um, Watanabe. He actually was the one that started the team um, that I had joined where we applied for licenses in Maryland and New Jersey. And then one other person, even though she's not in, in cannabis, I'll say from my finance days, that really inspired me is um, one of my mentors, Marilyn Booker. She was the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at um, Morgan Stanley and also the head of the Urban Markets Group. And so just these ideas that I have around diversity, equity, and inclusion and how we can just really help is, is something that I've really got from her and that I've taken, you know, from my finance days and put in cannabis. So that, that would be, uh, that's, that's who I would probably say. And I, like I said, I'll just stop naming names. Cause like, again, there's <laughs> me, it's like, for me, like I find inspiration in so many different people. Like it doesn't have to be somebody that has this high up position or like somebody that's even above me. 
it even blows my mind you now the way that I, I have people come to me and say that like they appreciate what I do or like I'm a mentor or idol. Um, so like, again, there's people that are just getting started out that I find inspiration in and it makes me want to keep going. So, so I just love for everybody in the industry that's doing dope stuff, like moving it forward, man, it's, it's huge. I appreciate you sharing that. Since you've been in the cannabinoid industry, what has been the biggest misconception? I think the biggest misconception, and I, and I hope to clarify this myself, because we, I think we all talk about the generational wealth opportunity that's in cannabis, but don't get in cannabis thinking it's a get rich quick scheme because it's really not like everybody, like people think everybody in cannabis is making money hand over fist and it's not true. Um, there are people that are well off, but like, if you own a cannabis business, you you get hit with 280E, you're giving up like 50, 60% of your money to taxes, right? So you got that. And then like I was a bud tender, I, I made $15 an hour. So it's like, it's not like everybody in this is just making money hand over fist. So I would say that this whole generational wealth, although it is an opportunity, is, is probably one of the biggest misconceptions that people have from the outside looking in. And I would add a second one to that is that to be in the industry, you have to like have a plant touching business. Like I think having an ancillary business or finding some other way to get involved it's probably one of the greater opportunities in the industry that's often overlooked just because people don't know it exists. Like I had somebody that I met last year that was a like a CPA and he was talking about like, oh, I want to get into the cannabis industry. I want to be a grower. And I'm like, do you know anything about growing? You ever grew cannabis? He's like, no. And then we started talking to him like, hey, you know, I was like, hey, maybe you could be a cannabis accountant. Right. Like that's a whole lane, a wide open niche. Let's look at that. So that, that, those are like some of the misconceptions that I always try to steer people towards and help educate them on. Because if we're talking about generational wealth, you might do better if you're a cannabis accountant than if you try to, you know, start a start a business that's already re- very capital intensive that you don't really have experience in. Yeah, it's called a hobby, right? If you're an accountant, probably just still be an accountant, but then you can be a grow at your house and there, there's your hobby. You've got both those checked off. And I, and I think it's so important that you share those because like we talk about the gold rush sometimes and how not everybody needs to get rich off the gold, right? There's the the shovels and what the, the picks is the saying, Kellen, is that the saying? That's the saying, Sh- shovels and picks, but also cannabis needs accountants too, right? Like right. The, the industry needs all these other professional services that support every other industry. So like if you're an accountant, then it's a golden opportunity to be a cannabis accountant. Same skill set, just a more exciting industry, if you will. Right. More cash. You could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation. What would it be? And this doesn't really have anything to do with cannabis, but I would say one of the most important things is really always believing in yourself, um, staying optimistic. Like I really believe that anything you set your mind to, if you believe it hard enough, you put forward the steps to do it, it can happen. And that's, that's whether you don't believe it or not, to be honest, like people look at me and, um, see all of this great stuff that I'm doing. And it's like, to be honest, I have no idea how the hell that I got here. It's it's only through that dedication, like, bro, like, you know, long hours, like, you know, even when you think you can't do it, pushing yourself to to do it and being, I think the other thing that I'll say is just being good to people, being a good person. I think that that's not as valued as much in today's society. I try to live by the phrase, treat people the way you want to be treated. And it always comes back to you in return. So, you know, Treat people good, man. Like that person that you might think is insignificant or that you don't know, or that person might be the be the person <laughs> you know that's hiring you or something a year from now, right? Like so, and, and that doesn't even matter whether they're hiring you or not, whether it's a, a homeless person on the street or like a dignitary. You want to treat everybody the same. So 
those are kind of rules that I try to live by. Perfectly said. What's the one thing that every person, single person can do to make a difference for USCC's and MPP's mission going forward? Well, I'll say if you if you believe in cannabis legalization, reach out to your local legislator. Let them know. Cannabis prohibition has been going on for far too long. We're seeing the momentum coming now where states are um, legalizing at a rapid pace. So, you know, if you're somewhere where cannabis isn't legalized, make sure that you let them know that. And as, as we're talking about federally, Make sure you let your know, you let your congressmen, you know, your your members of the House and Senate know that you want to see cannabis legalization. And then also let them know that equity is something that's important to you, right? Let them know that you want to see a inclusive and equitable industry for everybody that's involved. And um, just straight up in prohibition, man, there's, there's no reason for people to be still being locked up for this. It makes no sense whatsoever. So. I mean, that's what I would say. That's how you could help me, man. Just, just help us, help us in this mission to, to end prohibition. That's going to be tough to follow. Kellen, your thoughts? Get involved. Also, I think talking to your friends and family, um, as far as, I mean, of course, talking to your local legislator is going to be the most impactful, if you will. But also talking to your, your friends and your family about cannabis, if you're pro-cannabis. I think that like cultural stigma is still a huge thing, especially on the East Coast. I mean, being out here on the West Coast, we kind of get wrapped up in the fact that it's been legal for a long time and it's a lot more kind of like part of our everyday life, right? Like driving in Denver, you're going to see dozens and dozens of dispensaries and and consuming cannabis has kind of become a lot more normal, if you will. But that's just one state. And in order for federal legalization and to end prohibition, we need the entire country behind it. And I think talking to your friends and family is the best way to help curb that cultural stigma because once everyone kind of is on the same page, as far as cannabis not being the devil's lettuce, it's really going to help push that momentum that's needed to convince both sides of the aisle that we need to end prohibition. All right, Brian, your turn. What do you got? It's really well said. I mean, for me, it'd be all right, educational focused. I think be open-minded, do some research, be, be interested in kind of challenging your own internal assumptions. I think with stigmas that have been around for so long, it's going to take time. And the only way to, to kind of to really make a difference is to continue to work on yourself, but to be open-minded about changing your thought process. And I'm sure that can be a good message for people to just take in general. But but here, even more important too, because it's been stigmatized for so long and people have been, you know, they've faced the, the war on drugs for so long and there's still too many people that are, are facing these consequences. And to make a difference, I think it starts with education. And to hear, I, I think you're doing an incredible job. And I think for, for those out there that want to get involved, they want to learn more, where can they get in touch? For sure, man. So you can reach me on social media. Um, LinkedIn and Facebook is just my name, Tahir Johnson. Instagram and Twitter is Tahdiddy, T-A-H-D-I-D-D-Y. Um, you can reach me by email at tjohnson at uscannabiscouncil.org. I will always try to make myself available to help people that are interested in learning about the industry, um, whether you want to know about legalization or how to get active as an entrepreneur. So definitely feel free to tap me as a resource. Um, you can learn more about U.S. Cannabis Council at uscannabiscouncil.org, Marijuana Policy Project at mpp.org. And last but not least, man, y'all to check out my podcast, The Cannabis Diversity Report. That's, um, I do it sporadically now, but um, you know it's online on, on most of the different platforms, social media and like um, podcast platforms also. We'll plug those all in the show notes. Appreciate you taking the time. Look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks, guys.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has can of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network.